Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together as your people. And Father, we thank you so much uh, that we um, can hear your word um, and we ask uh, that you would be with us now. And grant, merciful Lord, uh, to your faithful people pardon and peace, uh, that, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, may your spirit now enable us to understand this word that we've just had read out. Um, give us the will to put it into practice. Father, fill us with your spirit. Uh, enable us to um, believe that your word is good and that your word is true um, and that your word is for us today. Um, Father, we pray boldly and confidently knowing that Jesus is with us, uh, ruling and reigning, and it's in his name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are continuing uh, kind of about halfway through our teaching series called Press On. Uh, it's from the book. That Paul's got two letters uh, in the New Testament to the church in Thessalonica. Um, and this is uh, his first one and most likely the first recorded letter that we actually have from the Apostle Paul uh, from the New Testament. Uh, and Paul is writing to Christians in uh, the second largest city in Greece uh, to this day. Uh, Thessalonica continues to be a, a large city. Um, and the message that he has, he, he, if you remember the context, he didn't get to spend long, as we read in Acts chapter 17, um, in the city of Thessalonica. And so there's a sense in which there's all these new converts, but there were riots that broke out that meant Paul kind of had to sneak out during the night. And so in this letter, uh, it's a letter to some new followers of Jesus. And the message is keep going, press on, keep trusting the Lord. Uh, we considered in the first week, press on in faith. You have faith. You've put your trust. That's another word for faith. You've put your trust in Jesus. Now keep going. You've turned from idols. You're serving the living and true God. You're believers now. Press on in your faith. In week two, we considered pressing on in ministry. In particular, Paul was defending some of his ministry. Um, but I think what we got was not just a, a defense of the apostles' ministry uh, among them, but actually some pretty helpful and universal principles, I think, for all who engage in gospel ministry. Uh, last week, we saw from Zach the, the encouragement to press on in love. Uh, kind of faith, hope and love are, are three words that are used in the opening sentences of 1 Thessalonians and then kind of teased out. And last week's passage uh, had a lot to say about love and a lot to say about pressing on and continuing uh, in love for one another. And this week, um, our title is Pressing On In Holiness. Pressing On In Holiness. Now, that may not sound like fun, um, but that is the call in the passage today. You see, we get this, this picture and kind of the big principle in this passage is that the goal of life is to please God. The goal of life is that we would be holy. We would be set apart. We would be different. We would be a changed people. Uh, the goal of life for the believer is to please the one who has saved you. The number one pursuit in the life of those who've been saved by King Jesus is that we live no longer for ourselves, but for him who lived for us, who died for us, who was raised again. We seek to please no longer ourselves, but we please the God who has saved us. Uh, have a look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. 
It says, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you. There's a strong encouragement from the Apostle Paul urging them in the Lord Jesus, because remember they are those who are in Jesus, they belong to Jesus, that as you receive from us, you've seen it in the example of, of Paul, of Silvanus, of Timothy, you've seen this from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is a key moment in this letter. This is a key moment as he encourages these believers to live in light of what God has done for them in the gospel. Look, you've already seen it, and Paul has made that point in previous chapters. You've seen the way that Paul and his other missionary partners lived among them. You've heard it taught. This is what it looks like to live as a Christian. This is how you walk as a follower of Jesus. And the goal of the Christian life is that we please God. And I love that what he says there, even in verse 1, he says this a few times over a few topics in 1 Thessalonians. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And, and so th there's a helpful point there before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of this passage. Paul is not first and foremost saying, you guys have missed the mark in every possible way. Remember, he sees a church that is alive, a church that is trusting Jesus, a church that is being transformed by Jesus, but he wants to urge them, implore them, encourage them. Hey, I already see evidence of you as a community pleasing God, but do it more and more. And, and, and even just by way of a, a heads up, I, I could say the same thing about this church. I see people seeking earnestly to please the Lord with their lives, to walk no longer as the world lives, but to walk Jesus' way, seeking to please God. And so where that is you, good on you. Keep going. Do it all the more. Press on in holiness. Now, it might be as we work our way through this passage, you kind of go, well, uh, and again, it's not to guilt and to shame us, but you might kind of go, actually, I need a little bit more of a kick. I kind of know the ways in which I, I, I'm often pleasing myself more than seeking to please Jesus. And so by all means, be encouraged for the ways that you are progressing and continuing in the faith. But where there's a need to go on and do it all the more, Paul urges them and Paul urges us to walk and to please God. This is his instruction to those who are in the Lord Jesus. Your whole life has been transformed by him. You know, this, this idea of holiness um, which the, you, you don't see the word holiness there, but the whole, uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, it kind of some of the, the word grouping there is, is a call to holiness. What does holiness mean? Holiness, it, it means being set apart for holy service to the Lord. Being set apart for holy service to the Lord. First and foremost, what we read in Scripture, and we see it on repeat, particularly in the Old Testament, but again, all the way through to Revelation, we see that God is holy, holy, holy. He is the very definition of being set apart. He is the one who shows us what holiness really looks like, what um, being altogether different looks like. And yet the call for those who are in the Lord Jesus, the will of God is that we too would be holy. Remember, Jesus even says, be holy as I am holy. The call is to live differently. It's to do the right thing. 
It's a call to obedience. When Jesus says do X, we do X. When Jesus says don't do Y, we don't do Y. We do the right thing. We embrace holiness. We live a different life. Now, once we start talking about holiness, just a heads up, I feel like we're walking into a, a, a dangerous area. Because if you talk too much about holiness, you'll be accused of legalism. What's legalism? Legalism is that kind of doing good things and being holy to earn favor with God. And so, hey, if we emphasize holiness too much, we might be saying, hey, you must do this to be saved. And I don't want to be charged with legalism. I don't want you to be charged with legalism. We are and desire to be a a church that are centered on the gospel, the gospel of God's grace shown in Christ Jesus. Today is Reformation Sunday. Um, That is, it's a day when churches for the last 500 years have remembered the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And so much of the Protestant Reformation where the goal wasn't to create the Protestant church, but that's kind of what ended up happening. The goal was to reform the church of the day. And kind of a well-known catch cry from the Reformation uh, is Bible alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. The emphasis being um, we, we, the, the Bible alone. We, we are people that are not trying to just think of human reason or traditions from the church, but first and foremost, our rule of life comes from the Word, from the Bible. And, and secondly, Christ alone. He alone is our Savior. He alone is the one who makes salvation possible. Grace alone. It's not by anything we do. It's a free gift from God in Christ Jesus. Faith alone. And we read in Ephesians 2 that even faith is a gift from God. God lavishes His grace upon us. We respond by faith, trusting, believing. But even that is not of us. That is a gift from God so that all glory goes to God alone. We want to be a people that say it is by grace alone that we are saved. It's not by the things that we do. There's nothing in our hands that we bring. We're trusting in Christ and what He has done We don't bring anything to our salvation other than the sin that we needed to be saved from. And so, Reformation Day, yeehaw, grace alone in Christ Jesus, yes and amen. And so, while there's a danger of legalism, we don't want to be heard to be saying, you must do this and do that in order to be saved, because it's grace alone in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And so while there might be a danger of legalism in wanting to affirm grace alone, there's also a danger and that we don't talk about the ethical implications of following Jesus. We don't make Christian ethics actually something that we teach to one another and encourage one another to walk in. And so we're, we're trying to avoid falling off the road into this legalism thinking that we merit something of our salvation but then the, the, the other danger is that we, we kind of just eat, drink and be merry and we're not too worried about obedience to King Jesus. We want to be those who recognize, yeah, we're not saved by the law, but we are called to walk in obedience to the Lord. Walk in obedience to God. Look at what it says in the text. The encouragement is that you would walk, verse 1, to please God. 
your posture, your swagger, the way you walk down the road of the Christian life and your life in general, if you are in the Lord Jesus, is that you seek to please God. You know, as an idea I've been thinking about in this realm of uh, uh, holiness in recent months, uh, as uh, an Australian pastor based in New York, John Tyson, I've quoted him a bunch of times, uh, he kind of talks about this whole idea of kind of calling Christians to walk in holiness by consecrating themselves to the Lord. Uh, consecration is a, a kind of a, a, a word regarding, regarding being prepared, uh, set apart. It's kind of very much connected to holiness. Uh, and I found myself in um, John chapter 17 this week. And in John chapter 17, um, verse 17 to 19, John chapter 17, verse 17 to 19, this is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, not long before he goes to the cross. Um, Jesus, God the Son, prays this to God the Father, sanctify them, his followers, in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified or consecrated in the truth. Hear what it's saying. Jesus in his prayer is asking Father, would you sanctify them? Would you change them? Would you make them holy? Would you set them apart for holy service of God? But do you see what he says? Jesus says, I consecrate myself. Now, just read through the Gospels, the whole of the life of Jesus on this earth, walking God in the flesh. He shows himself to be set apart. He shows himself to be holy. He shows himself to be altogether different from us. Yes, he's made like us. Yes, he's tempted as we are. And yet he is the only one of whom it can be said he was without sin. And so Jesus sets himself apart from us, living the perfect, righteous, holy life in our place in his life. He sets himself apart as holy. He consecrates himself. But then more than that, as we read not long after John 17, Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus has already lived the life we failed to live. And now Jesus goes to the cross, dying the death that we deserve for all the ways in which we've been unholy. For all the ways in which we've sinned against God in thought, in word and in deed. By failing to love God as God. By failing to love our neighbour as ourselves. As Jesus dies on the cross, the sinless one dies in the place of sinners, making the way open for salvation, making the way open that we could be restored into relationship with God, that we can be holy, both seen to be holy because we're in the Lord Jesus, but then also transformed, ongoingly, progressively sanctified, made more and more like Jesus. Jesus consecrates himself that we too can be consecrated to him. Jesus has given himself fully to us in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. And the only response is that we give ourselves fully to him. We give up trying to please ourselves as if we are on the throne of our lives. We seek to please the God who loves us, the God who made us, the God who, even though we've rejected him, calls us to come home, invites us to receive forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus has given himself fully to us. What does it mean to please God? If 
you're totally going to go, I can't even spell sanctification and holiness. Is there a W at the start of that? Maybe. (laughs) Hear this. In response to what God has done for us in Jesus, giving himself for us, the call on all Christians is walk this way. Please God, live for him. Live not for yourself. Brothers and sisters, as you reflect upon your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope and trust you can see the ways in which and the evidences of which in your life you are seeking to please the Lord, to, 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 to obey the law of Christ. Jesus sums up the, the law of God from the Old Testament as, as two things. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. That you would please the God who made you and that you would please the God who saved you. And so as you reflect upon your life and as you see the evidences of pleasing God in your life, praise God, well done, keep going, but do it all the more. And if even as we kind of slow down and talk about living a life that pleases God, you're kind of like, well, to be totally honest, like I kind of like what Jesus offers in the gospel, but I'm not quite sure he makes that much of an impact in my day-to-day life. Well, trust him for your salvation and start living to please him. Not because you earn anything, not because you're trying to earn favor with him. You've already got favor with him because of what Christ has accomplished in his finished work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. But now that we have favor with God, we live to please him. Now we could stop right here at verse 3a and that's... That's it. That's, 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 that's the Christian life. It really is. This is God's will for you, that we would be sanctified. You know, sometimes we kind of go, oh, what's God's will for my life? You know, I, you know, I wonder what he wants me to do here, there, or wherever. Well, we don't have a Bible verse for every little situation in life, but we've got a big one here. God's will for your life is that you'd be sanctified, is that you'd be holy, is that you'd live to please God. Be holy, be different in every area of your life. Now, my guess is in many areas of your life, if you ask the question, does this please God or does this not please God? You know the answer, don't you? Now, we do need to keep teaching and we'll keep walking our way through the passage because the Old Testament and New Testament actually flesh out different scenarios and different situations. And and we ought not assume that when someone becomes a Christian, they automatically pick up the Christian ethic. And so we we actually want to keep reading the Bible to keep hearing what God's specific will for us is in various situations. But the headline is, be holy. Please God. Drop the mic. However, what does Paul do after verse 1 to 3? Well, he gives some examples of an outworking of this teaching. There's kind of three examples that he speaks about. Uh, The first one is regarding sex and sexuality. The second one is regarding love for one another. And the third one is regarding work. My guess is, as I look at the clock, we probably won't make it to two and three. And so I'll touch on them briefly at the end. We're gonna kind of really nut out this, this principle of live a life that is pleasing to God in every possible area with a massive and important application for the original recipients of this letter, the church in Thessalonica. 
but I'd also suggest significant uh, teaching for the church in Stafford, the Christ our refuge, for the church today, wherever she may meet. And so kind of applying this principle, there's a call and an application from Paul to followers of Jesus to please God with our practice of sex. To please God with our practice of sex. Now, before we dig into the text, it's worthwhile understanding a little bit about the nature of the city of uh, Thessalonica. I've got a great quote here from John Stott, and he writes about Thessalonica. He also writes about Corinth, because Paul was writing the letter from Corinth to Thessalonica. And so there's some reflections on these two cities. Let me give you a quote from Stott. He says this, It is not surprising that the apostle begins with sex. Not only because it's the most imperious of all our human urges, but also because of the sexual laxity, even promiscuity of the Greco-Roman world. Besides, he was writing from Corinth to Thessalonica, and both cities were famed for their immorality. In Corinth, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, whom the Romans identified with Venus, sent her servants out as prostitutes to roam the streets by night. Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, in whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. It may be doubted, however, whether Corinth and Thessalonica were any worse than other cities of that period in which it was widely accepted that men either could not or would not limit themselves to their wife as their only sexual partner. There's a helpful context setting, certainly for Corinth, certainly for Thessalonica, and much of that Greco-Roman world of the first century that Paul is preaching the gospel to. People are responding to the gospel of Jesus, are in the Lord Jesus, are called to please God and pursue sanctification and holiness. And so the message is a countercultural message. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, he sums up the situation like this. I was really struck by this quote. He said, A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. Uh, The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, uh, while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot, and the function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. Kind of, you know, like an intellectual mistress, a a slave on the side, a, 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 a prostitute. Oh, and my wife, my beloved. And that that is normal. That is the air that the Thessalonians are breathing. And while we we may not be as um, maybe calculated as that, what would we say of our world? What would we say of our city? What would we say of great cities in Western society? Well, at one level, Western culture uh, for a long time had been very much Christianized. And regardless of what went on, like, underground or behind closed doors, at least publicly, at least as the accepted norms, for for many years, centuries even, uh, much of Western society and culture was shaped by a biblical sexual ethic. It's not saying everyone was a Christian, 
but something of the, the norms and the morals of what is to be expected regarding sex, sexuality and marriage and so on has been shaped by some of the ethical teaching of Scripture. And yet I think just a, a basic understanding of the last century, uh, this, from the sexual revolution in the 1960s and on, I think every decade that has passed, we've become more and more overtly promiscuous, worshipping at the idol of sex, celebrating that which not that many generations ago would have seen as obviously perverse. We celebrate, we march down the streets, we parade it in our schools, we put it up as normal to be celebrated and the fruit of freedom and liberation. And so the message that this church received is a message that Christians in our cities need to receive, and all the more so. We need discipleship. We need a Christian ethical framework for believers in our time and in our place. I still remember a conversation I had with someone some years ago um, who uh, caught up with him for a coffee at the start of a new year. And, you know, hey, what, what, what's coming up this year? Uh, not a Christian, uh, a friend of mine who wasn't a Christian, who'd kind of been on the fringe of the church I was part of at the time. And, and um, you know, I said, you know, what's coming up this year? And he explained this elaborate plan for how he was going to uh, propose to his bride in this exotic location later on in the year. They were obviously already cohabitating and this was a big moment for them. And it was it was good to be there with him and to be able to say, that sounds fantastic. And, you know, he talked about it and he talked about it and I encouraged him and, and said, that's a great thing to be doing. And then he said, what about you, Dave? What does your year hold ahead? And I said, well, I'm thinking of maybe proposing to Rowena. And you know, I was joking. We'd been married for 15 years by that stage. We had three children. I was the pastor of a church. And he didn't realize it was a joke. He's gone, wow, that's amazing. And I kind of, I had to backpedal and go, I'm sorry, I was actually joking. We've been married, we've been married for a long time. And, and yet, kind of off the back of that, what it made me realize is how far we've come from some biblical worldview where there's an assumption that a pastor of the church who's got a woman in the bed next to him with three children uh, in bedrooms around the house, that, that he's not married. That that didn't even occur to this friend of mine as being strange because of the worldview and the, the world that he's grown up in. And that made me realize, I think, particularly in this place of sexual ethics, we've got a lot of work to do. And when someone responds to the gospel of Jesus, we ought not assume that they just automatically take on a Christian sexual ethic. So let's get to the point. Well, let's get to the text. Let's get to the Christian sexual ethic. And so here's the word to the church in Thessalonica, and here's the word to our city here today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he says, That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There it is. There's 
a Christian sexual ethic. There's more verses in the New Testament. Paul says more in other places. Jesus says more. John says more. We can, we can learn more. But at least here's a reasonable teaching in a nutshell of the call to holiness to please God when it comes to sex and sexuality. Paul says there in verse 3 that you abstain. Abstain. It's a strong word. It's not just kind of, you know, just tiptoe around the side of, get to the fire as closely as possible. It's the idea of have nothing to do with it. Flee from it. Don't try and work out how close you can get to immorality before it's called immorality. Run! Abstain, Paul says, verse 3, from sexual immorality. Now, what's sexual immorality? Uh, We could write a very long list, but sexual immorality is anything outside of God's plans for sexuality. What are God's plans for sex and sexuality? Well, God's plans are that the the only appropriate place for a sexual relationship is between one man and one woman in the context of, of marriage. And so anything outside of that, any practice of sex with a human, online, even thought life, Jesus says, is outside of God's plans. Sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Sexual intercourse with someone else's spouse. Cohabitating before marriage. Pornography. Whatever it is. Kind of going a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. Pursuing a romantic, sexual, physical relationship with someone of the same gender. All of these are some of the ways in which people don't flee and abstain from sexual immorality. But the people of God are called to abstain from thinking and behaving in the way that the world does. The call there, I think it was uh, verse 4, that you you know how to control your own body in holiness and honour, with self-control, set apart, different. Even the whole concept of honour radically changes the whole concept of hookup culture. Hookup culture is all about me. It's what I get. There's no honour. It's my gratification. It's it's all about me. And yet the the picture we get here, the picture we get in Scripture, is that sex in the context of marriage is the opportunity to honour, to serve, to put the needs of another ahead of your own. But did you notice there that the contrast, and I really need my glasses, the contrast in verse 5 kind of says, do it like this. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Isn't that an interesting statement? This is the contrast. There's this wild, there's this over the top, there's this hunger, there's this meat. Go, go, get it. And yet those Gentiles are those who do not know God. Those that Paul is writing to and us. We are those who know God. We must not only think differently, but we must behave differently when it comes to sex, to sexuality, to relationships. We know God. You know Him. The God who gives life and breath and everything. The, the, the Creator God who knows our purpose who knows why we were made, who knows how things work. He wrote the manual because he's the author of life. He knows what human flourishing will look like. He knows how things are supposed to work in a way that honours him. 
and in a way that is good for us. We are called, as those who do know God, to abstain from the immorality that is so prevalent within the culture around us, to pursue holiness and honour, to be different. You know, back in talk one of this series, uh, remember we, we talked about idolatry. Uh, this is a big thing in the city of Thessalonica and this is a part of the testimony of these believers in Thessalonica is that remember they've turned, served and waited. They've turned from idols to serve the living and true God and they're now waiting for Jesus. And, and uh, there's a couple of quotes, I'm actually going to re-quote them. Um, regarding idolatry, you may remember we talked about sex, money and power in brief. We're obviously drilling a bit deeper on sex right now. But let me give you a Tim, Tim Keller quote. Uh, he said, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. What a, what a wonderful call to a counterculture, to be strikingly different from the world around you. And then John Tyson, again, I quoted this last time with his reflections on the quote of Tim Keller. Tyson said this, we need to be a people marked by financial promiscuity. This isn't a giving campaign, by the way, but... Feel free to give money to church. Uh, financial promiscuity and extramarital sexual stinginess. Instead of being driven by sex, money and power, we must be driven by faithfulness, generosity and servanthood. What a wonderful picture and what a wonderful invitation, not just from Tim Keller and John Tyson, but from the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be different, to please God, to be less interested in how the people around me in my school are thinking, in my university are thinking, in my suburb are thinking, in my workplace are thinking. But think as one of God's people, one of us, a Christian who knows God. We pursue God's plans for us. You know, there's, um, there's some warnings in there. Did you notice them when they were read before? Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother uh, in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yes, we are saved by grace, by trusting in the finished work of Christ. But as those who now claim to know Christ, we take seriously this word of Christ for Christ's followers. God will judge God will avenge. We're called to, not to impurity, but to holiness. And so to disregard this teaching and to be caught up and just go downstream with the culture around us, rather than swimming upstream, God's way, pleasing Him, we are disregarding not just the man-made rules, but the Word of God. God will judge all sexual immorality, now, that judgment may not necessarily take place here and now, and I think more often than not, it doesn't. Romans 1 even hints at that God even gives people over when they pursue same-sex relationships and pursue things outside of His plans. Um, God gives them over, and that's part of judgment. But God will judge all who disobey King Jesus and fail to turn back. Now, did you notice the final words there in verse 8? 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's a wonderful little, just a little gift in the middle there. Because I think sometimes we can hear this teaching. We go, oh, but the world is like this. And it's, it's like, I, I'm just going to be the exact same as the world. And I'm going to do the same things as all the people in the world do when it comes to sexual relationships. But we, we, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We can obey this. It's not saying we'll be perfect. It's not saying we'll never slip up. It's not saying we won't sin. But we ought to pray, if you are a Christian, if you are now in Christ, God, may your spirit keep filling me. May you help me to obey you. Your way is the best way. I want to please you. Jesus has consecrated himself for us. He's given himself fully for us. And so I want to give myself and please my God and my Saviour. Now, what if we, we slip up in a little way or a big systemic way? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's got in view much more than just sex and sexuality and homosexuality and and, and so on there. There's all sorts of categories there. Those people who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that beautiful? But you... And such were some of you. This is what you were like, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified, not in a progressive sense of you making yourself more holy, but you are already, if you are in Christ, are seen as one who has been cleansed. Paul has a warning there in 1 Corinthians 6, but he also has the wonderful hope of forgiveness, of cleansing, of holiness that is on offer in and through the gospel. You know, the opportunity we have as a church... I think, when it comes to this teaching, and we ought to be praying this for generations to come, not just in this particular church, but the church, is that we would be an alternative city within the city. Now, what's what's our vision? Our dream is to be a, a city within the city of Brisbane, a city of refuge within the city of Brisbane, where many people have found refuge, security, and hope in Christ. What would it look like for us to be an alternative city, a city within the city? where the way that we live is different, markedly different. How we view marriage, how we view sex, how we view sexuality, how we relate together, men and women, how we think through singleness, how we think through divorce, how we think through all of these things, that we would pursue health and holiness and happiness as the family of God as we live out the ethical teachings of pleasing God in response to what God has done for us in the gospel, that we would shine brightly as an alternative community but that also we would be a place of refuge. And this might be a message for you right now. You might, be, you might have shame in your past. You might have brokenness sexually in your history or even in your present. We want this to be a place where you can come and find refuge, find forgiveness, find not shame, 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 but love and acceptance because of Christ. We want to be a place of refuge, not only where we model this new kingdom, but where those who are broken, whether it's because of their own sexual sin 
or whether it's because of sexual sin done against them. The cross deals with our sin. Jesus says, come, those who are weary. The cross deals even with the ways that we've been sinned against and shamed and had shame put upon us. The, the cross wipes it away. The cross removes it. Jesus paid it all in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. He is our safe place. And we pray and hope and trust that as a community in him, we likewise would be a safe place. You know, I think this is um, a, a critical area of teaching where um, in the time that we've got this afternoon, it's an inadequate time to really drill into this teaching, but also what this means in the broader Christian landscape. Uh, denominations in our country right now are debating the topic of sex and sexuality, and in particular, same-sex marriage, and is there any room and scope for that within the people of God? And people that may have held a view for a long time, we, we can start kind of creeping toward actually capitulating to the culture. And there's a, the, it's tempting, isn't it? I don't want to sound like a jerk. You can't get married. And yet we're seeking to please God, not ourselves, not the prevailing culture that ain't that healthy. <laughs> Promiscuity, ain't, it, it's not good for you. I love that we are connected in the very beginning of our church's existence with millions of Anglicans around the world, part of GAFCON, if you don't know this, um, uh, Global Anglican Futures. It's a kind of a, a global movement to kind of stand up and actually wherever there's evidence of the church or the Anglican church kind of capitulating to culture, which has happened here in Brisbane. I don't know if you've driven past the cathedral. What is it? Ann Street. Is it Ann Street? Ann Street. They've got rainbow flags out the front. I don't think those rainbow flags have anything to do with the teaching series on Genesis 1 to 11 right now. There's a capitulation to culture. There's a desire to be palatable to the culture, but they've lost their distinctiveness. GAFCON is wanting to stand up in the global Anglican communion and actually say, no, no, we're going to stick with pleasing God. And we're going to stick by his ethical teachings. We're going to honour Christ. We're going to pursue holiness. We're going to pursue honour in relationships. Uh, as some of you may know, I went to the, the GAFCON conference in Rwanda back in uh, April. And uh, one of my concerns was, oh, I hope it's not all about the issue of sexuality. Um, and it wasn't. It was actually about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is true. The gospel needs to be preached. Christ needs to be honoured. Churches need to be planted. And so I love, and I think we're probably running out of time. I've even got some of the founding documents of GAFCON. Anyway, nerdy stuff. I might share it in the WhatsApp group. That'll be a reason to join the WhatsApp group to, to see some of these documents. But I love that even the constitution of our church, we've actually already nutted this out. In a, um, how many points in the Jerusalem Declaration? I think there's, uh, about, there's about 17 points in the Jerusalem Declaration. They're all pretty standard things regarding what we believe, that Christians have always believed. But there's a line in there about sexuality. There's a line in there. I'll read the one. I'll read the one, Dave. You've gone there. You might as well keep going. 14 points. Point eight. We acknowledge God's 
creation of humankind as male and female and the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy and the basis of the family. We repent of our failures to maintain this standard and call for a renewed commitment to lifelong fidelity in marriage and abstinence for those who are not married. Um, that's not the gospel, but it's an ethical teaching in response to the gospel that people are compromising all around the world right now in various Christian denominations and in various Christian circles in our city, in our denomination, in other denominations as well. And so I love that we've kind of got that there. That actually helps me because I could see how easy it would be to be tempted to capitulate to culture, to just drink the water and start walking the walk of the way of the world. Look, I just want to speak very briefly as we conclude to those of you here right now who are really offended. First, I'm just quoting the Bible. Just putting that bit out there. I want to please God and honour the teaching of Scripture from God. But in particular, I want to talk to you if you're not a believer. You might be particularly offended by what you're hearing. And what I want you to hear really clearly is that first and foremost, our prayer for you actually has nothing to do with sex and sexuality, as good as that is. My prayer for you is that you would see and behold the glory of Christ. You're a sinner in general, just like me. Just like every single person in this room, every person who has ever lived. All of us have sinned against God in thought, word and deed. We failed to honour God as God. We failed to love our neighbour as ourselves. As all of us. I ain't any better than you. The ground at the foot of the cross, Billy Graham said, is level. We are all equally in need of salvation and the good news of the gospel. Friend who's here today who may not yet be a follower of Jesus, come to him. He offers to forgive you of all of your sin to trust in him as your savior. But then the call is to submit to him as your Lord, to believe that he has that which is best in mind for you. And so our goal as a church, I don't think, is to play the culture wars game. It's not to change Brisbane's view on sex and sexuality. Brisbane's view on sex and sexuality is Brisbane's view on sex and sexuality. We will live a counterculture within the city and then we seek to introduce people to Jesus first and foremost. Not point one, tell us about your sexuality. That's just weird. There's a sensitivity to the topic. There's a weird way to start up a conversation as if that's the first thing we care about. No, first and foremost, you've offended a holy God with your whole life. You're deserving of judgment, but there's good news. Jesus loves you. He came. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. Now, let's talk about that first and then, yeah, hey, we're going to have some hard conversations about sex and sexuality. We don't have to have them overnight. We don't have to resolve all those things straight away. But as you see and behold the glory of Christ in the gospel of Christ, his love for you, Jesus is better than sex, even godly sex. Jesus is better than promiscuity. Jesus is better than any other gospel, than any other narrative that our city will dish up to us. And so, friends, if you're offended, come and talk to me. 
Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. We want you to come back next week. And we want you to keep meeting Jesus and learning from him. We have gone over time. We are not going to talk about love for one another. And Zach certainly spoke about that last week. We're not going to talk about work. We'll do that next year. Um, But you got the point, right? The point is please God with everything. If if you kind of went, Dave said sex a few times in the second half of the talk and you, you tapped out, well, just remember the first half, which is please God with everything. Offer yourself to him wholly. Live no longer for yourself, but for him who lived for you, died for you and was raised again. And when it comes to sex and sexuality, let's please God in that area. Let's honour Him, our God and our Saviour. Let me pray. Our great God, we, we are so thankful that you love us. We are so thankful that you've loved us with an everlasting love, that even when we were far from you, you have drawn near to us. Father, we want to thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ the perfect, holy, righteous one, your son, God in flesh. Thank you that he lived for us. Thank you that he died for us, for all of our sin. He took our shame upon himself. And so, Lord, may we trust him. May we believe that he he left those things buried in the ground. He rose from the dead. He's now alive and he rules us by his word and by his spirit. Lord, make us a people who seek to please you in everything. May we be a community of grace where while we strive for holiness, we know that we will trip up in all sorts of different areas, that we would not be embarrassed to share of our struggles, that we'd not be embarrassed um, to to confess our sins again to you, but that as a community, we we would trust Jesus, we would please Jesus, We would be an alternative city within this city, living not for ourselves, but for him who lived, died and rose again for us. Father, may we be a safe community, a place of refuge for the broken in our city, in whatever area of brokenness they are experiencing. And Father, may many people find refuge, security and hope in Christ as we embody that love and kindness and grace of Christ uh, to the, the city and the world around us. We need your Holy Spirit's strength to do this as we seek to walk the walk and please you in all things. And so may your spirit fill us even now. And it's in the name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen.